Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. I'm Sharon Salzberg. I've been teaching meditation for more than 40 years, and I'm an author. We're told so many myths and, you know, kind of downright lies sometimes about where happiness is to be found, and we get confused, and uh, we run around, and we get dizzy, and the problem is not the wanting to be happy, which is a beautiful thing. It's the confusion. It's the ignorance. And so learning to kind of take a stand and really question, what do I need in order to be really happy, and what makes me strong? This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Sharon Salzberg is a world-renowned teacher of meditation and a New York Times best-selling author. As co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, she's known for bringing meditation and mindfulness practices to the West. She explains how through a foundation of mindfulness and kindness, we can all find the true meaning of success. So Sharon, your mom died when you were young and your dad was mentally ill. How did you survive emotionally? Oh, that is such a good question. Somebody stood up in a talk I was giving once and they, you know, in the question period and they said, who loved you? And I thought, wow, someone must have loved me, you know, and I did have loving figures in my life. You know, I had uh, certainly my grandmother who I ended up uh, growing up with, you know, past my mother's death. And uh, but there was also there was something happening inside me, which I wish I could, you know, capture it and bottle it or. Uh, even express it properly, but there was something in me that knew that there was happiness that was possible, that, that life could look different than it looked, and and I just held on to that. I graduated from high school when I was 15. I went to college when I was 16, and all the time, that in my mind, like, I, I just have to find it, and, and it will it will take care of me, whatever it was, the love in the universe or something. What's your advice for women dealing with loss? I think that... Uh, there's a big cultural uh, mandate that we always stay in control. And so loss or fear or even being ill feels like a failure. And I think that we have to counter that. We have to counter that very strongly. And it's very hard to do alone. So probably my main piece of advice would be form a community. There are other people out there as well who are dealing with something really hard. And, and it would serve them as well as you to not be uh, facing whatever it is so alone and really challenge that stigma, whatever it's about. Um, and really, it could be everything from getting older to being ill to dying to uh, not matching some expectation to uh, being, you know, different in some way. And that's okay. You said we shouldn't let loss define us. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that, you know, when we get um, – it's like our whole sense of who we are and all that we'll ever be can collapse around something, you know, tragic that's happened or a mistake we've made or – uh, some ill fortune in some way, and we can't even imagine feeling a different way, or uh, you know that this won't be permanent. And and yet the truth is, it won't be permanent, and that there is a bigger life. You know, sometimes, for example, we have helping hands reaching out toward us, and we can't even see them or acknowledge them because we're so consumed by uh, the pain or or the sense of not being enough or, or whatever it might be. And uh, we have to kind of 
grow bigger in our perspective and maybe we've made a terrible mistake of some kind and we can't in that moment ever remember the successes we've had or the times we've gone the extra mile to be helpful or, or something like that. And we have to grow beyond that kind of conviction. We are only the mistake as well. So we're always kind of stretching in some way. Years ago, you said people would react strangely when you said you taught meditation. <laughs> now the title of meditation teacher is almost trendy. What's your advice for women who are on the path that others may not understand or value? Um, yes, I'm very trendy. I didn't used to be. Um, it's very true. Uh, I think that uh, more and more, if, if one's path has to do with uh, introspection, uh, reflection, contemplation, it is more and more acceptable. But basically, you know, what people uh, really meet and what they are served by is um, our caring or our kindness or our presence or our ability to let go or our ability to not get so down on ourselves. And uh, so that's how we live, you know, and so that's the most important thing. That's the magnet that draws people to whatever we may be doing to help us in that path. Many people tell you that they're so stressed out. What do you say to them? <laughs> Usually it's I'm so stressed out I, could, I should learn how to meditate. So then I say, okay, you know, I can help you. Um, I think it's really fascinating, uh, first of all, to look at what the greatest sources of stress are in our lives. Sometimes it's surprising when I've worked in a particular workplace, for example, or a, a particular profession um, where people are doing very similar kinds of work, and we say, why don't you write down in one column on a piece of paper the thing that is most stressful at your work? And when people do that, sometimes it's very surprising because it's not the mammoth task they are facing or the seemingly irreducible suffering they're trying to ease. It's the coworker and really bad communication or it's uh, feeling that you're failing the people you're supervising or something like that. And and that's interesting to identify. And then in the second column, we said, why don't you write down the things you do or you have done to lift your spirits, to get a break, to gain perspective, to uh, relax in some way. And people, you know, for years wrote down uh, all kinds of things, everything from listen to music, and it was always different kinds of music, to um, get out in nature, to... Uh, sometimes things that were kind of disturbing, like I drink a lot, you know. And, and then in the third column, we said, look back at that second column uh, of things you do to get a break and de-stress and write down how you feel about the different things you wrote down. So sometimes people would say, wow, I, I get a real lift from getting out of nature. I haven't done it in seven years. Maybe I should do it. Or I drink a lot. That worries me. You know, that might be something I, I need to address. And so uh, it was a great sort of um, perspective-taking exercise that we would urge people to do at least periodically so that they, in a way they draw their own map. We draw our own maps, you know, and, and then what we would say in the context of of our offering is, well, here are some other tools. You know, here's yoga, here's mindful movement, here's a meditation practice of different kinds. And uh, if you want to, you know, we can experiment with those and you can add them to your list of the things that you use. Women may project worries into the future, which causes them more anxiety. What do you say to women who say projecting ahead also helps them prepare? I think it's it's uh, fascinating to, first of all, have a tremendous awareness of what's happening in your body because there are ways we plan, there are ways we project that don't seem to be tying all these knots, these psychophysical knots inside us. And there are other ways that we project, uh, which are just sheer anxiety, you know, like, uh, what if my plane is late? Oh, no, you know, I'm going to miss the connection. I bet I'll miss the connection. That means I'm going to land in, you know, Portland, Oregon. There are not going to be any taxis. What's going to happen to me? It's going to be after midnight. You know, we haven't even, like, checked the airport <laughs> you know, check the weather. Uh, it's just a little journey of anxiety. And we can feel the toll inside of ourselves 
uh, we feel the tension, we feel the stress, our muscles are tighter, we're not breathing really well, and uh, we learn to make the distinction between, uh, you know, kind of letting your imagination rip in a way that's really free or uh, kind of carefully planning, which is also good sometimes and important, or just this kind of free-floating anxiety, which is taking that form. In your book, Real Love, you say as long as we judge ourselves harshly, it can feel as if we're making progress against our many flaws. But in reality, we're only reinforcing our sense of unworthiness. What do you mean by that? Well, this is sort of the new science of self-compassion where um, in contrast to self-esteem, which is also important, you know, we many evolutionary biologists will say that we have a kind of negativity bias, that we're hardwired to look for danger, look for threat, you know, what's going to eat us next in the jungle. Uh, and it takes intentionality to look for the positive, to look for what we have to be grateful for, um, to look and accept what's delighting us or uh, the wondrous thing that's also happening. So that's also good. But self-compassion comes in more when we've blown it, we've made a mistake, we've strayed from our chosen course, we've forgotten our aspiration, or we've fallen down in some way so that we have to get up or someone else has to help us up. And sometimes our conditioning tells us that the most appropriate response to having made that mistake is like being harsh, being punitive. And it's actually studies are beginning to show that that kind of environment, that internal or external environment of high stress and that sense of punishment, you're bad and you're awful, will actually spike our performance, but briefly, and then we crash. And that the best way to have a sustained effort at changing a habit or making progress in something or learning something new is actually different. It's this quality of self-compassion, which doesn't mean being lazy or not having standards of excellence, which is what people fear. It means giving yourself a break. You know, it's, it's saying, okay, I blew it. Lessons learned. What are the lessons to learn? But if I stay stuck here and just ruminate and identify with this, like I'm only this person who said this stupid thing, and uh, and we go over and over and over it, and we're lost, and we're exhausted, we're demoralized, and we have no resilience. We can't actually begin again and just kind of pick up and, and go forward. And so the healthiest way and the most effective way to actually make a change is, is the sense of care about yourself. And a part of that... Um, is is realizing this is part of the human condition. Nobody's perfect. Everybody blows it. This is the nature of life. We're always kind of starting over and doing a course correction and learning something and adapting, and that's okay. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot WSJ. Drive time, gym time, anytime. WSJ Podcasts. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. You say that to truly love ourselves, we must challenge our belief that we need to be different or inherently better in order to be worthy of love. How so? Well, in some ways, you know, we're worthy of love because simply because we exist, you know, and 
uh, rather than feeling like, well, when I, you know, learn another language, then I'll finally be worthy or uh, when I can afford, you know, this this fancy toy, then I'm worthy. Um, but it's simply because we exist and there's something so um, tender and, and universal about just the human condition that we want so much to be happy. We want a sense of belonging, a sense of being at home somewhere, like in this body, in this mind, with one another on this earth. And and yet we're so confused about where that happiness is to be found. And we're told so many myths and you know kind of downright lies sometimes about where happiness is to be found. And we get confused and uh, we run around and we get dizzy and um, but the problem is not the wanting to be happy, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, it's the confusion. It, it's the ignorance. And so learning to kind of take a stand and really question, what do I need in order to be really happy? And what makes me strong? You know, are the things that I've been taught, like uh, vengefulness sometimes for some people in their conditioning, you know, or um, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Never take care of anyone else because they were not going to be there for you. Um how does that make me feel, you know, and qualities that sometimes we've been taught are too squishy, like compassion, you know, it's like for suckers or, you know, uh, it's too weak. Let's take a look. Really? Is it that? Or or maybe it's stronger than we think. And so um, it's almost like we have the opportunity to write our own psychology text, you know, based on our observation of ourselves. And, and then we know and we have this, this sense of, Oh, you know, that striving to be perfect or to be different, it's endless uh, because it's never enough as compared to everybody could be part of this sort of um, embrace of caring. What do you say to women who say if they fall in love, it will make them weak or dependent? Uh, it might, you know, but it doesn't have to. Um, I tell the story in that book actually about a friend of mine who um, – uh, outlived her cancer prognosis by I think honestly it was like 40 years or something like that and she told me that when she was first diagnosed she looked at everything she just looked at everything in her life and one of the things she said was I used to be the kind of person who'd be riding in the car with my husband boiling hot and the most I could bring myself to say was are you warm dear and she said that changed you know, and so it, it, even if we have very strong conditioning toward weakness or dependence, it doesn't mean it has to live out because we have consciousness, we have awareness, we have the ability to constantly change. And it's kind of exciting to uh, meet one's old conditioning with a sense of creativity and possibility and uh, not just fall into it. So it doesn't have to, even if we have that very strong conditioning. And what a great thing that is. How can women get better at asking for what they want? I think the first thing is to know what we want, and that's uh, based on mindfulness often. You know, it's a degree of mindfulness to to be able to discern. And sometimes, actually, awareness of what's happening in our bodies is actually um, the key. I have a friend, for example, who said that she's the kind of person – she would describe herself as the kind of person who could never say no. And so she was always overwhelmed and always in these situations where, you know, these draggy things were happening and she felt responsible for everything. And so what she did in her meditation was she uh, consciously brought up that kind of scenario in her mind where she was asked a really inappropriate favor and she felt she couldn't say no. 
and she learned what happened in her body in that moment, that sense of panic and um, the kind of rush, a very visceral feeling. And that became her feedback system so that when she was at work or someplace like that and she was asked that very kind of question and she would identify that particular panic coming upon her, that was her clue to say, I'll have to get back to you later. Like she couldn't quite say no, but she could buy time. And once she was away, then actually she could say no. So uh, we learn our own reactions and what they mean. Um, and we learn skills of communication. You know, like uh, my friend in the car, boiling hot, um, didn't have to, you know, attack her husband or be overwhelmed with hostility. She needed to say, I'm really warm. You know, I'd like to turn down the the therm- the thingy in the car. For your entire career, you've relied largely on donations, speaking fees, and book sales. What's your advice for women who are managing an uneven income? Well, that's very interesting. You know, being a freelancer of any kind, you, you really, in effect, are are doing that. And um, some of it, I think, comes down to understanding in a very deep way what we need or what we actually need in order to be happy because – Sometimes, um, you know, the world will tell us we need something else, something bigger, something grander, and maybe we don't actually. And uh, maybe having some leisure time is more important to us or being able to be really creative and think about the next thing, which might be very different than this thing, this current task or job. Um, and we need the time to do that. And if you if you just get on this treadmill of like, I always have to be earning money because – uh, you know, there won't be enough, and that's very tough. And so, in a way, you know, I started with trying to discern what is enough, at least for now, or as far as I can see, and then um, work around that. So maybe you could elaborate on that because you've said it. We have a distorted notion about where happiness is to be found. For example, we may say if we only had a bigger apartment, then we would be happy. So what do you say to people say, well, you know, I would be happier if I had a bigger <laughs> apartment? <laughs> I understand that. Uh, it, it's all a balancing act. First of all, I think the the deepest happiness is going to come from within in any case because we all know that, you know, we could feel crummy and uh, alone, like deeply lonely and um, – you know, unseen and so many things. And we can be in the biggest apartment in the in the city and it's not going to make a difference. We can be in Hawaii and on the beach with rainbows, you know, uh, surrounded even by caring people, but we don't see them, you know, because we're so consumed by that interstate. So that's one thing. And another thing is, is just to be able to take a look. I mean, there's certainly times I've wanted something, a bigger apartment in New York, for example, um, and uh, it's kind of an interesting assessment, like what would I have to give up? What would I have to compromise? In some cases, not in that particular case, but in some cases, who would I have to hurt in order to get that thing? Um, and then you just see, is it worth it? You know, like when I realized that for me to have a – you know, I don't live in New York permanently. I live in Massachusetts. I have a sublet apartment in New York City and – um, and some of my sublets have been teeny tiny little things. And uh, and I realized at some point that for me to be able to afford a, a much bigger place or even a bigger place would have meant being in New York a lot less because I would have to travel in order to teach and make the income. And so the irony was that I'd be here less 
in a bigger apartment, you know. And so uh, it was a very funny moment. I thought, well, does that make any sense? You know, like uh, I like being here. That's the point, you know. And so how about if I'm here more in this current condition? And that was great. Is money spiritual? Is money spiritual? Uh, money is, is, I guess it could be spiritual because it's a medium of connection. Um, it's not, you know, corrupt necessarily. I don't think it's inherently anything. It's just a, it's symbolic almost of, of exchange. You see families play a role in shaping our stories. So, for example, if our parent always told us we were bad at managing our allowance, we might think forever we're bad with money. What do you say to that? I think it's really fascinating always whether it's a clear voice from the past or it's just a kind of um, corrosive inner critic that exists within us uh, to be able to see it as conditioning, to see it as a tape. Uh, One of the things we say, for example, is if you have a persistent inner critical voice, you never do anything right, you know, and it's not a helpful one. It's really a nasty one. Um, Give it a name. Maybe give it a wardrobe. Give it a persona. And then see how you relate to it because the whole point is in the relationship. So, for example, I named my own inner critic Lucy, with apologies to any Lucy's listening, uh, based on the character in the Peanuts comic strip. And it was because I saw a cartoon once where Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown and she says, oh, Charlie Brown, you know what your problem is? The problem with you is that you're you. And poor Charlie Brown says, well, what in the world can I do about that? And Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. And somehow whenever I was walking by that desk, my eye would fall right in that line. The problem with you is that you're you. Because that Lucy voice had been very dominant in my earlier life. And I felt like my meditation had really given me some tools to deal with it. And so something happened. Something great happened for me. My first thought was, that's never going to happen again. And I greeted it with, hi, Lucy. Chill out, Lucy. What impact does wealth have on happiness? It can actually go either way. I think obviously we need sufficient for our needs. Otherwise, life is a matter of survival and it's a terrible struggle. But um, And that's not insignificant. But uh, there are certainly many people who have a great abundance of external wealth by any measure. And they don't have internally the feeling that they even have enough. And so uh, they feel quite impoverished. Are you saying you can't be wealthy and also happy, though? Oh, you can be wealthy and very happy. And and yet I, I don't think it's the clear determinant of whether you're going to be happy or not. You say the best generosity comes from a sense of inner abundance. How so? Well, just in that way, you know, like uh, I know very wealthy people who um, take such delight in being generous. They feel very connected to the world around them. And I know wealthy people who feel incredibly isolated and they don't feel they have enough. And so their life is still a process of accumulation and other people feel in a way threatening um, to them. And they don't want to see anyone's vulnerability or the struggles they may have and uh, they don't feel they have enough to give. And that's in contrast to some very, very poor people that I know, especially as I've traveled around the world and you know encountered in so many cultures, there are people who by external measures, don't have a great deal, but they are incredibly generous, and it means so much to them. In Burma, for example, you don't expect to celebrate your birthday by getting gifts. You expect to celebrate by giving gifts. So that's how you you go about the day. What's the best personal finance advice you ever heard? Um, I would say uh, uh, get 
uh, a savings account and you know invest in a four hundred one k and um, think about the future. What role does spirituality play in a woman's professional life? I think it's very important. Uh, whatever you know, it's it's a sense of meaning. Spirituality is a maybe a controversial word, but it's having a sense of meaning. It's knowing that. Um, what we do is worth something, and that may be found in the job description. It may not be, but it also needs to be something we draw upon because not everything goes well every day, and uh, we need to have something that we're we're resting on. Like, wow, that that didn't happen, but you know, every conversation I had today, I tried to make someone's life better. Would you give us a mantra or just like a one-minute meditation on? we can use to help us feel more financially secure or empowered? Uh-huh. Uh, I would say you can, uh, if you want, just for a minute to sit and uh, visualize yourself sitting in a room with piles and piles and piles of money, you know, and then think about what you really want. What does that money symbolize to you? Because nobody wants piles of money. Maybe it's security that the money represents to you. And then just think for a moment, is there another way I can have security? And maybe it's leisure time that you want. You want to have fun. Is there another way I can have fun? Not that you want to dismiss the money or not have any, but you know, maybe we don't need to rely on it so so solely, so completely. And just kind of go through your list of what do I really want the money to give me? And then just see, is there some alternative? Maybe I can do both, you know? And uh, it really frees you from that sense of, of dependence. Time now for your secrets. I'm Sharon Salzberg, and my money secret is that I decided that I actually have enough. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos with special help from J.R. Whalen. John Wardock is the executive producer of WSJ Podcasts. Be sure to tune in this fall for all new episodes featuring inspirational stories from today's most successful women. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at Anthropic.com slash Claude.